Chapter fifty two of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter fifty two. The first thing that struck Mem about the business of selling jokes was the melancholic despondency of it. In the other studios, there had been a deadly earnestness at times, but usually a cheerful informality but ned ling was in a state of nerves and dismal with anxieties the first scene rehearsed showed mem being ardently proposed to by a dapper young juvenile whose grace and beauty were to be the foil for ned ling's triumphant ugliness the juvenile was instructed to do a simple bit of business young mr mcneil realizing that the scene was supposed to be mildly funny tried to play it in a mood of gaiety to horse it a little with a slight extravagance of manner and a humorous twinkle in his eye ned ling checked him at once cut out the comedy mr mcneil if you please it's all right to be funny in an emotional picture but comedy is a serious business a joke is dynamite and if it's handled carelessly it will blow up in your hands and take you with it i want the audience to blow up not you so you carry that scene as seriously as you can the criticism hurt young mr mcneil but it warned mem she went through her own business with a simple matter-of-factness as if it had no humor in it this was because she did not know how to make it funny to her amazement ned ling cried out great perfect play it straight the audience wants to laugh at your expense don't let em know you know you're funny or you're gone but mr mcneil i must ask you not to crab miss steddon's scene crabbed the scene sir what did i do you moved don't you want me to move never not when somebody else is getting off a point you can kill half or all the laugh by distracting attention an audience can only see one thing at a time get one idea at a time you've got to ship em your jokes like a train of box cars you can't jumble em or there's a wreck when miss steddon's at work you freeze and miss steddon will do the same when it's your turn and when i'm with you i'll murder you if you move an eyelid when i'm springing something and you can murder me if i breathe during anything of yours and one thing more watch out that you don't spoil your own comedy by moving the wrong part of your anatomy i can kill the best face play in the world by moving my feet or my hands i can kill the work of my hands by rolling my eye remember that comedy is the most solemn business there is mem was amazed dismayed at the anguish of exactitude attending each little bit of silly wit she had captured her tears and her dramatic climaxes with a rush but wit had to be stolen upon prepared and exploded just so ned ling at lunch-time told her of a year of meditation spent on one idiotic incident he had not got it right yet it might not be ready for this picture or the next some day it would come out just right and then it would appear like an improvisation of the moment he was especially delicate about the broad bits he was a lover of coarse jokes he loathed the puritanism that gave them an immoral quality yet they would not have been half so funny or perhaps not funny at all if it were not for the forbidding of them just as nakedness would have no spice no commercial value and would suggest no evil thoughts if it were ignored or made compulsory or if the wrong-headed moralists did not surround it with horror and give it the fascination of rarity 
Mem suffered acutely from Ned Ling's discussions of risky humor. She had never heard such talk. She was like a trained nurse, getting her first glimpse of life through the eyes of a doctor, learning not to swoon at the lifting of the veils. Ned Ling had a doctor's impatience of prudery, the same contempt for the vicious indecency of what he called the nasty nice. He jolted Mem horribly, but he shook the furniture of her soul into more solid places. Like a nurse, like a woman doctor, Mem was far more decent after this course of training than before, but it took all her nerve to keep from wincing, from protesting, from taking up that obsolescent woman's weapon. How dare you? She learned in time to laugh wholeheartedly like a man at the coarse verities. She was not educated up to Rabelais. Few women have ever yet gone so high in the upper humanities. She would never love the great vulgarities, but she was emancipated from the smaller squeamishness, the wide-eyed doll mind, and the Kate Greenaway innocence. That was why, perhaps, she could revel so wonderfully in the beggar's opera when she saw it. It was the first opera she ever did see, grand or comic. Not even a musical comedy had passed her eyes and ears. Her father did not believe in opera, and if he had had his way, Mozart, Verde, and Wagner would have been as dumb as Shakespeare, for he abhorred the playhouse, too. The catalogue of his abhorrences was unending. He abhorred almost everything human that he could think of except when it was twisted into a form of prayer. He liked opera when it was disguised as oratorio, and the singers wore their own clothes instead of evil costumes. He liked plays about Santa Claus, and he vaguely approved the old miracle plays the church had fostered, since he never dreamed how indecent many of them were. He was beginning to admit that motion pictures of educational or religious purpose might atone for their sins. But Mem would as soon have asked permission to go to a dance as to a theater in Calverly. Los Angeles had, for a city of its size, a minimum of theatrical entertainments. The long haul across the deserts made it prohibitive of late years for most companies to visit the Pacific coast. She had seen a few plays given by the city stock companies and by the Hollywood community players. She had even dragged her mother to those devilish amusements and brought her away without a sniff of brimstone. Her acquaintance with the world was almost exclusively of the movies, movish. Like the people of all other trades, when the cinemators had a free evening, they spent it in more of the same. The picture houses were frequented by the picture people, of whom there were thousands in Los Angeles. Her first opera was curiously the last opera one might be expected to see at all in her day. Somebody in London had been inspired to revive the sensation of 1728. It had run for a solid year in the new London and another season in New York. Its ancient art had glistened like a Toledo blade. It made the epigrams of Oscar Wilde and Bernard Shaw look old-fashioned. An opera whose hero was a thief and whose scenes were sordid, the gayest of operas, it dumbfounded Mem as it had set old London aghast. There, where the rival Italian companies had made war in an otherwise undisputed field, it suddenly arose and laughed them off the boards, drove Handel into bankruptcy, drove him to such despair that he went to Ireland, and, casting about for something to do, besides the operas that were a closed career for him, tossed off in three weeks the Messiah, and became immortal as a religious force. Thus much Mem learned before the curtain rose. 
after it was up she learned to laugh uproariously at the utmost delicacies of indecency it made an earthquake in mem's soul to sit alongside ned ling and listen to the scene where the heroine horrifies her parents by announcing her marriage to a handsome young man horrifies them not because she wished to marry a highwayman but because she wished to marry at all except possibly some old man for financial reasons mem was aghast when they ridiculed their daughter's talk of love at length the father protested do you think your mother and i should have lived comfortably together so long if we'd been married this was as terrifying as a scarlet snake but mem shook with laughter then collapsed into dismay if she could laugh at that what decency had she left her soul groveled in itself remorsefully until the next epigram jarred it out of its opossumism and she laughed again she had so lost her orientation by the finish of the seductive villainies that she did not faint when ned ling said i've laughed myself hungry i haven't ordinarily any appetite let's go to my house and have a bite to your house yes it's all right i'm quite alone there just a jap very secluded she wanted to say you tell me not why i should go but why i should not and i won't but it seemed a silly little girlish old maidish prunes and prismish thing to say wasn't she an independent woman now a voter a free and equal self-supporting citizen of the united states in her imagination she could hear the wild crew of the beggar's opera laughing at her for a shy little hypocrite lacking the courage to obey her instinct and her training she said all right and got into ling's car when he said home to the driver she almost swooned but not quite the jap showed no surprise at the late arrival of his master with a lady evidently it was the ordinary thing mem longed for a mask or a fire escape or a gun she glanced about for weapons of defense but ned ling said some scrambled eggs and bacon some wine would you rather have red or white or a little champagne let's have some champagne yes yes we'll have some champagne native california but good she felt as jack of the beanstalk felt when he found himself among ogres but ling turned out to be an infantile ogre if ogre at all he was more like an art gallery guide at first he showed her his treasures he knew something of art or so she judged him from his talk for she knew nothing of it herself but his manner was impressive he was especially proud of a portrait just painted of him by one of the california artists ling spoke of him as of the california school ling had brought home some jades from a voyage to china he was addicted to jades of a certain deep dark emerald hue he hated the sickly pallor of the usual jade mem decided to take up jade hunting as a sport when she got rich at the table ling resumed his play with her fingers she felt only curiosity she could feel neither alarm nor anger she was hungry but he kept one of her hands prisoner and preferred to talk afterward they went into the beautiful living-room a strange room for a clown more like what she imagined a millionaire's room to be judging from what millionaire's room she had seen in the movies he put on a caruso record on the victrola that old wail from pagliacci the heartbreak of the clown who is human in spite of the powder and feels red blood beneath the grease paint 
Caruso was just recently dead and honored with the funeral of a church dignitary. Wild minstrel that he was, singing his way around the world on rubber wheels the way filmers traveled in celluloid spools. A few years ago, said Lang, and a singer's voice died with him, and now Caruso is singing here, everywhere. He'll sing as long as Homer, poor old blind Homer, who never saw a picture, never knew that his own songs would live after him in the invention of the alphabet, never dreamed that they would be printed and used as school books thousands of years after he quit poking about the world singing about the fighters of his day. A few years ago, and we actors were condemned to oblivion as soon as we left the boards. But we can go on forever now. They're laughing around the world at me this minute. Listen. He kept an eerie quiet, and she could almost hear what he perked his ears to catch. That's a gang of sweaty coolies in China. They're helped to forget the opium laughing at me. Hear that? That's starving people in Russia, forgetting their hunger, because the seat of my breeches caught on fire. Did you hear that yelp? That was one of the exiled kings guffawing when I got shot in the pants by an angry husband. The king has forgotten his own grief. This cosmic boastfulness did not keep him long in pride. But I hate my pictures. I'm jealous of them. People don't like me. They just like that thing with the chalky mug. They love him because he's such a fool. I want to be loved because I am me and not a fool. Look at this painting of me. The artist cut the real me. See all the sorrow in the eyes and behind the mouth. See the longing and the unhappiness. That painter got under my skin. He got to me. I love that because it's me. Suddenly he bent over and kissed his own image on the mouth. It was the mad act of a Yankee narcissist overcome not by his own loveliness but by his own loneliness. Mem was dazed. She had a normal woman's normal interest in her mirror because a mirror is the show window of the goods she has for sale. She had become of necessity self-conscious, self-critical. She had admired extravagantly the reflection of herself in the looking-glass the night she went forth to meet this Ned Ling in her first magnificent gown. But she had never divided herself into such a pair of twins, such a mutual consolation society, LTD, as Ned Ling had organized. And as often happens, seeing that he was so sorry for himself, she felt no drought upon her own sympathy. She simply stared and wondered. He made her sit down on a long couch and snuggled close to her. She was still rather curious than alarmed. He took up her hand again and studied it, talking in the rather literary manner he sometimes assumed. Each separate finger has its own soul, don't you think? Hands are families, your own hands, anybody's hands, are a group of people. Hands are different, and fingers, they're wicked, capable of such terrible things, holding daggers, gifts, caressing, throttling, playing music, exploring, loving, hating. Queer things, fingers. Your right hand and your left hand aren't the least alike, and your face is still a third person. Before Mem quite realized how solemnly ludicrous a couple of comedians could be, if anybody had been looking, except God, and perhaps that Jap valet, Ned Ling's head was on her breast, and his eyes were turned up into hers like a baby's. It was in a newborn prattling humor. That was a secret of his success. 
he was a baby with all a baby's privileges of impropriety selfishness hatefulness adorableness he could revert to infancy and take his audience with him make old men and women laugh at the simple things that had tickled their childish hearts and withal there was an amazing sophistication he was a baby that calculated and measured triumphed and yet wept and wanted always the next toy he was thinking of mem as his next toy and she was thinking of him as her next child his warm head and his brown eyes like maple sugar just as it is liquescent to syrup and with the same gold flakes glinting they were quaintly babyish to her in spite of his old talk i want to love and be loved but not to love too much i'm afraid of love it has hurt me too bitterly some of them haven't been true to me and that hurt me horribly and i haven't been true to some of them and that hurt me still worse i don't know which is ghastlier to see a woman laugh at you or cry at you marriage is no solution i don't see how it can help being the end of love love ought to be free like art and speech of course art isn't free there's the censorship well marriage is like censorship everything you do and say and feel must be submitted to the censor they call this a free country and have censorships and marriage she smiled he was more like a prattling baby the more cynical he grew his heavy head made her breast ache and yearn for a baby but he wanted only the froth of life without the body and the dregs could you love me just enough and not too much he pleaded if he had said marry me tomorrow he might have had her then but she had not his opinion of marriage she had played the game without the name endured the ecstasy and the penalty without the ceremony she had escaped public shame by a miracle of lucky lies and accidents the hunger remained for the rewards of marriage the honesty of a home the granite foundations of respectable loyalty so when he pleaded with her for love that cheated and played for fun and not for all for a kiss for caresses she shook her head mystically as he thought but very sanely and calmly in truth she was far away mothering a shadowy child swaying in a rocking-chair throne ned ling's prayers gained fervor from her aloofness he called upon a goddess who would not hear she held his hands and slapped them with a matronly condescension that drove him frantic he could not get past the cloudy masonry he had built round her by deriding marriage it was a good subject for jokes but contempt for it was more ridiculous than the thing ridiculed finally she yawned in the face of his passion and said i'll be going home now please he was so thwarted and rejected that he sent her home alone she was grateful for that end of chapter 52 recording by diana bovey